welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about times when the Scriptures have become real to us or ways that we found they apply to our lives because we believe we can draw more power out of the Scriptures when we do that, and we need that power. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and this is a short cast where we're going to go just a little bit more into depth about the fall of the kingdom of Israel. We, we covered it just a little bit when we did uh, the kind of drive-by, high bird's-eye view, um, and we'll certainly come back to it a little bit as we do Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and these prophets that, that prophesy, trying to warn about the fall of Israel. Um, and we also only did a drive-by bird's-eye view of uh, the fall of Judah. We'll come back to that more um, in when we do Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. So we'll cover that a little bit more there. But there are a couple of lessons I really want to draw from the fall of Israel and uh, the scattering of the tribes. And it's an important topic, one that we need to understand uh, and for a number of reasons. And so I just want to go into a little bit more depth on this one. It won't take us long. Uh, so Zechariah is a king. He's the son of Jeroboam II. So remember, Jeroboam II is the uh, one of the long-lasting kings of the northern kingdom of, of Israel, uh, powerful, prosperous, fairly righteous, uh, doesn't get rid of uh, all idolatry, but uh, doesn't support idolatry and, and does a number of good things. In any case, his son Zechariah, when, when Jeroboam II dies, his, Zechariah takes the throne, and he's assassinated after six months. Uh, this is that instability that we see in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, a guy named Shalom takes the throne, and he holds it for one month. Then a guy named Menachem takes the throne, and he takes some pretty vicious action to keep the throne. Uh, and uh, he loses a lot of land to Syria. This is when the, that Syria-Ephraimite war is going, and then Hazael comes, and uh, who's been anointed by uh, Elisha and so on. And anyway, they just keep losing land to Syria. Uh, he ends up voluntarily paying a huge tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, who in the Bible calls Pol, P-U-L, um, but that's Tiglath-Pileser III, the, the king of Assyria, all right, and Menachem's also the last king of Israel to die a natural death. Um, when he dies, Pekahiah uh, becomes king, and he really doesn't last long. He's killed, and then uh, Pekah becomes king. He assassinates Pekahiah, um, and that seems to be reported by Rezin, the son of Remaliah, uh, and uh, this is uh, when Pika and Rezin are trying to force Judah um, it, into this anti-Assyrian campaign, the Syro-Ephraimite war that we have talked about. We'll talk about more. Um, they rebel against Tiglath-Pileser III while Tiglath is off battling uh, elsewhere. And uh, they were relying on Egypt for help, but Egypt doesn't help. So Tiglath-Pileser comes. Uh, remember that uh, Ahaz asked him to come, and we'll get more into that when we get into Isaiah. But he asks him to come. And he, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, destroys Damascus. He kills Rezin, son of Remaliah, and takes really firm control of Syria. Uh, this is also the end of Pekah. He comes in. This is 732 BC. He comes in and destroys town after town in the northern kingdom. This is one of those times where this became very real to me. Uh, and it was with the help of my friend uh, and mentor, Kent Jackson, uh, who I had a number of uh, classes from, and and uh, as I was a new faculty member, he was also a mentor to me. And uh, when I went for the first time to teach at Jerusalem, I'd been there as a student, but when I went to teach for the first time, and we went up to the town of Hatzor, and there is a uh, watchtower on Hatzor. Hatzor was one of the towns destroyed by uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, or at least conquered, when he came down here because um, uh, Pika withheld tribute and rebelled. That's how he rebels against him, is by withholding tribute. And um, 
Uh, Kent talked about the time that they became real to him as he stood on that tower and looked out at um, just to the north and thought about the men who stood on those very stones and saw the Assyrian army coming and uh, how fright frightening that must have been. But it's part of the scattering of Israel. It's one of the those northern cities that would have uh, first felt the wrath. And what happens is Tiglath-Pileser III comes in and um, takes, uh, a, he conquers all these towns, gets Pekah to submit, uh, but he also uh, takes a whole bunch of people from Israel, uh, not everyone, but a whole bunch of people, and brings them back to Assyria and, and also other places in the empire. Uh, so this is the beginning of the scattering of Israel. We probably have ancestors that were in those towns, such as Dan and Hatzor and so on, that uh, were scattered at this point in 732 BC and uh, taken elsewhere. This is how we actually have uh, Tiglath-Pileser III's account of it. He says, Bit Humriya, which means the, the house of Omri, that's their way of uh, referring to Israel. He says of, of that, all of its inhabitants and their possessions, I led to Assyria. Now, it's not really all, but it's a whole bunch, right? They overthrew their king, Pekah. So uh, he, uh, they, the Israelites, the members of the kingdom of Israel, are sure they're going to die. So in order to uh, make things better, they overthrow their own king. And then to make sure that everyone knows he's in control, he chooses who will be the next king. So he takes a man named Hosea. So this is how he says it. And I placed Hosea as king over them. I received from them 10 talents of gold, 1,000 talents of silver as their tribute and brought them to Assyria. So we have both the biblical and the Assyrian account of this happening. Now, Hosea is put on the throne by Tiglath-Pileser, and uh, at the same time, Judah becomes an Assyrian satellite because Ahaz has invited them in and they take over. And we've talked about that a little bit already. Um, Hosea sends huge tributes to Assyria. Um, they're a full vassal state. And they have to send people uh, to be in the army and to be servants and huge amounts of, of uh, wealth and food and so on every year. Um, and after a while, he seems to be slacking off on this. And Tiglath-Pileser has been succeeded by Shalmaneser V. And he comes against him. And, and so Hosea pays tribute to him. Um, and then Hosea allies himself with Egypt again hoping that Egypt will help, and he stops sending tribute. This tribute is so onerous that they, they just keep stopping. Um, Shalmaneser moves in and uh, is able to shut Hosea up uh, in prison or making uh, Samaria like it's a prison. He sieges Samaria for three years, um, and uh, he finally takes Samaria, but he dies just after taking Samaria. Um, and so his son Sargon II, as we said before, has to run back to make sure he takes control of the throne. He, then he has to come back and re-siege and reconquer Samaria, but he does so. Um, Egypt does send a little bit to help, but he defeats them and everybody else around. He's just uh, wildly, fantastically successful in battle. And uh, as a result, he conquers Israel. And he deports huge numbers of Israelites. Uh, not everyone, a lot of people stay but he deports huge numbers and he brings people from elsewhere in to intermarry with these Israelites. Now this becomes important. We're going to need to understand this part for uh, the stories later in say Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and so on. Um, and we'll also need to understand this for the new Testament. 
the people who are left in Israel, and then typically the elite were all taken. So you've got the poorer people who are left who intermarry with people being brought in from elsewhere. And this group, because the capital had been Samaria, this group becomes known as Samaritans. And this is who the Samaritans are. They're the, the leftover people from the kingdom of Israel intermarried with uh, other people. Uh, they already had kind of a mixed religious practice, and it gets mixed even more with these other groups. And so the king, the people from the kingdom of Judah are not going to accept them as full Israelites, uh, but they think of themselves as full Israelites. And so we'll see that play out uh, a number of times. This is how Sargon II says it. He says, I besieged and conquered Samaria. I led away booty, 27,290 inhabitants of it. So that's just of Samaria. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots and made re the remaining inhabitants assume their positions. So he, he gets the people who stay to take over their positions that uh, the people had occupied, whom he's now forcing to be deported. I installed over them an officer of mine and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. So this is the scattering of Israel, 721 BC. Some people will say 720, somewhere in there. Uh, Israel is scattered all over the place. Um, now, this is key for a number of reasons, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. It's important um, to, to think about and understand this, but let's first of all ask, why did they fall? Why did the northern kingdom fall? And we've talked uh, a number of times about reasons why they fell, but we also have in 2 Kings 17, uh, they, the, the scriptural authors, tell us why they think this northern kingdom fell. They said, first of all, they didn't keep the Lord's laws, right, which is their primary obligation under the covenant, so they're not keeping the covenant. Um, they built high places, so Dan and Bethel, and uh, every king supported these, so they have this false worship going on. They also started to build up groves. This is to worship Asherah, and it usually involves immorality. Um, they served all kinds of idols. Um, and then the prophets came and warned and warned and warned and warned, and they ignored and ignored and ignored and ignored. Or they would repent and then... Uh, sin again and repentance and again and as we've said before a lot of this is because they've chosen to follow wicked leaders uh, so but I, I hope you also see the cycle of mercy that's in here but uh, that god keeps giving them another chance and keeps warning them and keeps giving them another chance and never stops giving them another chance but they keep messing up um, they rejected all the statutes and judgments this is another way of saying they're not keeping the law of moses um, they made molten calves and baals this is another way of talking about these high places and the idolatry uh, idolatry is so important to understand, and we'll talk about that a number of times. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. So this is uh, child sacrifice, and, and of course, that happens in all sorts of different ways that we can talk about as we go along as well. They use divination, so they're seeking uh, to learn the future or communicate with the dead in ways that are not godly ways. Um, so we, we need to stop and think about all of those things. And the, the leaders that we follow, as we talked about elsewhere, and see how those happen in our lives. But there are a couple of other things that I want to talk about in terms of how they get lost and what happens as a result. So they are scattered. They're taken to Assyria, other places in the empire. And we can trace where they are for a while um, through Assyrian records and through names and so on. Um, and it's important to understand that the when the Assyrian Empire fell, the Israelites weren't lost as in they couldn't figure out how to get back. They weren't that far away. People knew how to get there. They could have come back. And in fact, as we 
see uh, much later, about 140 years later, when the Jews are taken so that the Jews or Judahites, members of the kingdom of Judah, and these are people who are not just people from the tribe of Judah, that's important to understand, um, and we'll go through that more as we do Isaiah and Hezekiah, but uh, that when the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, and then 70 years after that have the chance to come back, they do come back, they can find their way back, and Babylon is a little further south and further away than Assyria, um, but the Israelites, the members of the kingdom of Israel, don't come back, not because they can't figure out how to get back, but because they, they're not lost geographically. They've lost their covenant consciousness. Their temptation was always to assimilate, to or not to assimilate, but to adopt the uh, ideas of the world around them. They were so taken in by the world around them. They, they liked their idols. They liked the way they did war, whatever the culture, whatever seemed prestigious and cool. Uh, and, and keep in mind, these are uh, uh, the proclivities we probably have as descendants, uh, whether literal or spiritual descendants. But the, these ancient uh, northern tribes were so prone to adopting the ways of the world around them that when they weren't in their own place, they adopted those ways so wholeheartedly that they just assimilated. And so it's not that the, the 10 tribes were lost, it's that they lost themselves because they lost their covenant consciousness. Whereas later, the Jews would maintain their covenant consciousness and thus wherever they were in the world, they were not lost. They knew who they were and knew how to get back if they wanted to, and if it was possible, and so on and so on. That's not the case with the kingdom of Israel. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, in what way are we getting lost? Because we're so enchanted and enticed by the ideas and notions of the world that we lose our covenant consciousness. We stop being a holy or a peculiar people, and we become like everybody else. Then we get lost. Now, as the Israel is being gathered, we as a whole won't get lost, but lots of Israelites are being lost. Even lots of people who don't seem like they're lost are because they've assimilated so much into the world that it, it's really, even though they're going through some of the motions, they've really become lost. And, and in some, one way or another, that's all of us. Each one of us is lost in one way or another. Please stop and think and identify. How are you being so influenced by the world around you? And how can we get back to our covenant consciousness? Now, it's also important to understand the, the reason for this scattering. And there are a number of reasons. Of course, we say because they were wicked and they'd broken their covenant and this is a punishment. But God's punishments are always punishments with a purpose. When we get to the book of Hosea, we'll go through that even more thoroughly and make sure we understand that. But they are punishment with a purpose. He, the purpose is to humble us so that we will return to him. And no matter how many times we stray, he will bring us back. He will have chesed on us. We've talked about chesed before, that covenant of love and mercy. He, the, we are always welcome to come back if we only will come back. And so the question is, will we come back? That's the question for us individually. The question for um, Israel as a whole we know they will, but I want you to stop and think about it. And this is, in some ways, an incredible testament to God's patience and long-suffering and mercy with us, because the, the house of Israel is scattered in 720 B.C., roughly, right? So let's just say 700 B.C. The gathering begins in roughly 1800 B.C. That's 2,500 years. 
This is a 2,500-year cycle of God humbling his people and working with them to bring them back. He's, he's going to bring them back. He's that patient. He's that merciful. He's that long-suffering. It's always never too late. Uh, and so he is going to bring us back even 2,500 years later. And if he's going to do that with Israel as a whole, I suspect he'll do that with us. Even if it takes 2,500 years or more to get us to come around, he'll work with us that long. But note what happens besides Israel getting humbled is that Israel is sprinkled throughout the nations. They're scattered throughout all of the nations. And then when they're gathered, they can bring everybody with them. This is part of the purpose of the scattering of Israel is so that when they're gathered, they can gather everybody and give everybody the chance to make and keep covenants. That's Israel's job. That's their role. The purpose of Israel is to get everyone to make and keep a covenant with God, to get everyone to be part of the house of Israel. And that happens all the better when Israel is scattered everywhere and then being gathered is that they can bring everyone with them. Oh, the great mercy of our God, that he not only is so patient with all of Israel, but with everyone and uses his method of humbling Israel to bring them back to him to also help gather other people in. And we need to think of this in this grand, large, beautiful, wonderful scale that President Nelson is talking about, where he says, this is the greatest cause on earth today. The greatest cause on earth today is to gather Israel. And that's happening, he says, anytime we get anyone anywhere to make and keep covenants on either side of the veil. That's part of the gathering of Israel. And that's the cause that we're engaged in. And it starts with us. We have to get ourselves gathered to God by keeping covenant and being less worldly. And then we help everyone else do it. And then we're fulfilling God's purpose for us as covenant holders. It's my hope and prayer that we will do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.